Um, last night we looked at Genesis chapter 2 and what marriage is. Now we want to go to Ephesians 5 and think through what marriage is for. If marriage is not for something in particular, then it can be anything. But if God has designed marriage to be for something, then it can't be just anything that we might invent, even with our best of intentions. Um, So what marriage is, is a one-flesh union, one man, one woman for one lifetime, re-experiencing in imperfect but real form something of the Garden of Eden. As two selfish me's come together to form one joyous us. Um, Jenny, I didn't alert you. I would ask you this question, so I hope you don't mind my asking. I'm used to this. (laughs) Go right ahead. (laughs) What is one thing from Genesis 2 that stands out to you and means a lot to you? That the first spoken words in all of Scripture are love poetry. That God, in his kindness, lifts marriage up to that level. And we can, too. Our marriage is really precious to God. I love that. Yeah. The thing that stands out to me personally uh, about Genesis 2 is it is not good for a man to be alone. It is not good for me to be alone. I need adult supervision. (laughs) So I'm really (laughs) grateful for my wife. (laughs) Um, All right, now that's what marriage is, one flesh. That's what you've got to know. That's how God defines marriage. Simple words, massive concept, one flesh. Everything is shared. There are no walls. There are no barriers. There are no no boundaries. No secrets. Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. And in that place, uh, there is total visibility and vulnerability without shame. We never want to embarrass each other and make each other feel small. Uh, That means we have to relearn how to fight. You've got to learn how to have a gospel fight in your marriage where everybody wins. Would you like to demonstrate? (laughs) 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 Okay, now, that's what marriage is. Um, Now, what is marriage for? And let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5, shall we? Ephesians 5 actually quotes Genesis 2. So the two passages are linked together explicitly, obviously, very meaningfully. Mm -hmm. These two passages are the greatest things ever written about human marriage in all of history. The most insightful and helpful. And if Genesis 2 had something amazing to say, Ephesians 5 goes into warp speed. So let's look at this together. Follow with me as I read, beginning at verse 22. Now, as we read this, all kinds of alerts and red flags are going to come up in your mind. There are going to be things in Ephesians 5 you don't like. Those are the very things we want to press into. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, 
and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, now here's Genesis 2.24, in quotes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, to sum up, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, Janie and I are going to um, reflect on this together, but let me set it up this way. Your marriage is for more than your own personal happiness. God cares about your personal happiness. But God cares about even more than that. Your marriage is also a mission. Your marriage is for the display of the only real love that exists in all the universe. At the heart of the universe is a love too great to be limited to what we deserve. At the heart of the universe is a love nobody believes in. If you're a Christian believer, you kind of sort of barely believe it, like me. If you're not a Christian believer, you just don't even believe this is real. You think Christians have just made this up and it's kind of an ideal. It's sort of wishful thinking. But what if we happen to have parachuted into a universe where at the heart of everything is a love too great to be limited to what we deserve? What if we happen to have landed in a universe where ultimate reality is not cold, dark, blank space, but ultimate reality is romance. Gutsy, sacrificial romance that will pay any price for the beloved. That happens to be the universe we live in. Your marriage is here on planet Earth to be living proof of that. That goes beyond, that includes personal happiness. There is no other personal happiness. But it includes more. Your marriage is also a mission and a demonstration of the only real love that exists, the love this world absolutely does not believe in. Now, 
Again, Janie and I are going to reflect on the passage in just a minute, but let me just continue to set it up in one more way. I'm reading an interesting book, Unapologetic, by Francis Spuford, British writer. He says on the back, I like this. You can easily look up what Christians believe in. You can read any number of defenses of Christian ideas. This book, however, is a defense of Christian emotions, of their intelligibility, of their grown-up dignity. It is called unapologetic because it isn't giving an apologia, the technical term for a defense of the ideas. Also, it's called that because I'm not sorry. (laughs) I like that. So let me just read to you from the first couple of pages. It'll only take a moment. And this, this matters for your home, your marriage, the reason why you're on the planet. Our daughter has just turned six. Sometime over the next year or so, she will discover that her parents are weird. We're weird because we go to church. This means, well, as she gets older, there will be voices telling her what it means, getting louder and louder until by the time she's a teenager, they'll be shouting right in her ear. It means that we, her dad and mom, believe in a load of Bronze Age absurdities. It means that we're dogmatic, that we're self-righteous, that we fetishize pain and suffering, that we advocate wishy-washy niceness, that we're too stupid to understand the irrationality of our creeds, that we build absurdly complex intellectual structures full of meaningless distinctions on the marshmallow foundations of a fantasy, (laughs) that we're hair-shirted enemies of the ordinary family pleasures of parenthood, shopping, sex, and car ownership, that we cover up child abuse because we care more about power than justice, that we're the villains in history on the wrong side of every struggle for human liberty. But hey, that's not the bad news. (laughs) I'm cutting out a lot. This is hilarious. No, the really painful message our daughter will receive is that we're embarrassing. And worst, as I said before, there is no reason for all this stuff, no obvious lack that this sad stuff could be an attempt to supply. Believers are people touting a solution without a problem and an embarrassing solution, too, a really damp-palmed, wide-smiling, can't-dance solution. And so what goes on inside believers is just mysterious. Now, that's the world we live in. That's not a problem. That's why we're here. Because it's really hard to argue against a flaming hot romance. A really cool romance is itself an argument for the gospel. The love of Christ is all over it. All right, so let's jump into our our passage, and um, let's start out with uh, verses 22 through 24, honey. And uh, okay. Yes, sir. The (laughs) wives section. What, What stands out to you about this? baby. Oh my, oh my. Well, something that stands out to me in this, and I, I wanted to take a minute to speak to the women here about this with your husbands listening in, and we'll talk more about this in our wives only time together. We hear a lot that men are to be leaders, 
but this is one area where women can lead. Because as, as Paul brings the book of Ephesians to uh, this letter to a close, he's been talking all theology the first few chapters, and then he brings it down to application. What does new life in Christ look like? And he talks to the whole body, and then he starts bringing it down to our homes, our families. And who does he speak to first? Us women. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I think those are the most important words for a a romantic marriage to survive and thrive throughout all the years. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Do you hear that? It's not a jail sentence. It's teaching us how to be related to the one man on this earth that we've given our heart, our lives, our body to. That word submit is a hated word. That will be thrown at you as a Christian woman in the years ahead. Maybe some of you already have faced struggles with that where friends have said there's no way I'm never submitting to a man. I've done that before and I know what happens. But what is biblical submission? The Bible shows us so many ways, dear woman, how to submit. It means deference rather than defiance. Think of Mary, the mother of our Lord. Be it done unto me according to thy will. Deference rather than defiance. It means meekness rather than arrogance. Think of Abigail when she rushed out to meet David and saved him from sin. Think of how meek she was. She was submitting there. It means flexibility rather than stubbornness. Think of Sarah when Abraham uprooted her and took her to a land that she knew not where they were going. I think of a time in our marriage early on going to tell a little story about myself, all right? Sure. Um, When Ray and I met, he was football player, became captain of the football team at Wheaton. I I thought I was married in the campus jock, and he went to seminary while I finished up at Wheaton, and when we came together to be married uh, after four months apart, I was quite surprised because um, he... Well, he had changed. He had become a scholar. I was always the smart one in the family up until then, and all of a sudden he was studying Hebrew and Aramaic and, oh, Ugaritic. I mean, I just didn't even know how to pronounce the languages he was studying, and he was kind of a mystery to me. And he got his master's at Dallas Seminary, and we moved to our first church in uh, Palo Alto, California. He got another master's at at Berkeley, and our children started coming. By the time our, our third baby was on the way, Uh, Ray said, honey, I think I'd like to go back to school. And I'm thinking bachelor's, master's, master's. Well, that must mean a Ph.D. And it did. Dear ladies, that scared me. Um, We had three little children. I didn't know how we would afford it. I'm sorry, but I've been fearful about finances through the years. That's who I am, and the Lord is helping me with that. Ray's had to put up with that and lead me through that. But I was really scared. 
and I could not submit. I had so many questions. I'm so sorry, Ray. I just pestered him with questions. This dear man did not clobber me over the head and say, this is God's will for us. I really need you to submit. He prayed for me. He walked with me through that for two whole years. And after two years, I was ready to say, okay, let's move to Scotland. That's where he wanted to go. Now, how many of you wives would take two years to decide to go live along the River Dee with your three little kids and your husband, escape life in America for four years while your husband studied at the... I mean, I was crazy. But I chose to be stubborn rather than flexible. Honey, I, that's, you're being so hard on yourself. I... You promised me you wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> we tell stories on ourselves, and then we, the other person feels so bad because he doesn't remember it as that. But no. believe me, ladies, you know what I mean. Your husband says we want to move, and you've got... 20 questions right then. What about the kids? What about the house? What about my parents? What about the money? Anyhow, submission means honor rather than contempt. Think of Esther. Hmm. Go ahead. Well, you know, I was just thinking, honey, um, I'm so struck by the biblical examples you've given because every single one of those women was a very strong, capable person. Mm -hmm. For example, you mentioned Abigail. Yes. Um, Abigail, in what's outstanding to her, as you pointed out, is a, a, a kind of an attitude of meekness toward David, and yet it was in her meekness that she intervened in his life and redirected him from making a huge mistake to acting much more wisely and effectively. Mm-hmm. So in her submission, she actually initiated counsel toward David, but in a way he could receive yes. as a man. Because min- uh, submission is a ministry. It's a ministry to your husband. It's not a club, you know, that your husband holds over you. Thanks, Ray. That's yeah. good. It, yeah. it's a- which is probably why it says as to the lord yes thank you that's my next point oh perfect i know that was my segue yes you <laughs> reads my mind it's wonderful that submission is that gracious adaptability um that says lord you have ordered this this is not um some man's idea this is From the throne room of God, this is telling me how life works best. That's why Paul says here, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Submission is Christian worship. Why? Because we are most like Christ, dear sister, when we submit. Would you read uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 28? Please. In... uh, in this passage later on, Ray's going to teach about how Christ is the husband and loves the church. But Christ all, also submits as a wife should submit. Is that the right verse? Yes, it is. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. In other words, what is so striking to me about that is that the concept of submission is not something that it's not a male conspiracy 
Submission came down from heaven. There is submission within the triune Godhead. Mm-hmm. There's beauty and wisdom in that. Yes. Yes. So, wives, when you're struggling with this, ask yourself, what don't I understand about God that's making submission hard for me? Because submission actually teaches us more about our relationship to God than it does about our relationship to our man. If I'm struggling with submission, there's something I don't understand or embrace about God's good order, God's good plan, God's safe place, God's ideal for romance. Anything you want to add on that? That's really my heart on this, darling. Thanks, baby. The only other thing I wanted to ask you about is um, in verse 24, the words, in everything. Oh, yes. You know, the words, as to the Lord, as you pointed out, mean that being a, a Christian wife in a gospel-centered marriage is an act of worship. Um, I really like what you just said, that when we're not good at living this kind of marriage together, there's something about God we're not seeing. Mm-hmm. It's not as though if I just had a better wife, mm-hmm. then I would be a better husband. But I need to press into who God is. Okay, but the, the other thing is, in everything, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I mean, does that mean that if a, a Christian husband in a very unchristian moment asks his wife to do something that is clearly wrong, and he says to her, yeah, but it says there in Ephesians 5, in everything, so you have to do this. Absolutely not. That's not the flow of this passage at all. I mean, who is our example? The church submitting to Christ. He never asks us to do wrong things. No, he never (laughs) asks us to do wrong things. So there is a higher power above your husband. And if your husband ever asks you to lie on your tax forms or um, allow him to abuse your children or some horrific, you do not submit. You serve a higher master. And this makes that very clear, I think, in the example as the church submits to Christ. Yeah. So in everything just means that a a godly wife has an attitude and a heart of openness. Mm -hmm. Rather than cordoning off parts of her life, saying to her husband, you have no business here. For instance... You know, I'll submit to you in everything, but where my family is concerned about the holidays. Mm, We must spend Christmas with my parents because we've done that all our lives. All the other siblings are coming. Or, yes, everything except the amount of money I get from my inheritance. That's my own account. Or you name it. There, There needs to be an openness under your roof where your husband does not have to pry open and wonder if he approaches you about this, is that wall going to come down again? That's and good. is he going to pay for it the next few weeks? And that's, that's a one-flesh relationship. One flesh with total sharing between husband and wife. Okay, um, I, I'm sure that, that, that some questions are coming up to the surface here, and we have Q&A time after this in just a few minutes. So hold on to those thoughts. You might want to write those down. As we continue. Now, guys, beginning in verse 25, 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The direction that a gospel-centered marriage goes is toward the beauty of the wife paid for by the sacrifice of the husband. Um, Submission can be scary for a wife. Headship is demanding for a husband. And uh, a husband, a, a, a wife needs her husband's affection and a husband needs his wife's respect and honor. A woman is not to be treated cheaply, but cherished. We see the words nourishes and cherishes in verse 29. And a man must not be nagged and corrected um, as if he were a little boy. We would never do that to Jesus. All of us, we're, in relation to him, we're all in the female role. We would never do that to him. And that just doesn't work with a man. He can't receive it. So he gave himself up for her. That is a non-foot-dragging, non-self-pitying, wholehearted, passionate, abandon toward a woman. What a privilege to get out of myself, out of my natural self-focus and self-absorption and actually have a relationship. Not the concept of a relationship, but an actual relationship where I connect with another human being in such a way that I actually change. My future changes and I can't get it back because I am better off by losing my narcissistic self and giving myself away in costly ways. Six times in that paragraph we see the word love to describe the privilege and responsibility of a man. And then when we ask the question, what does love mean? Then we see in verse 29 those two words again, nourishes and cherishes. That's what love means. That's what love does. Nourishes, provides for. Cherishes, prizes and values and holds close. So a Christian husband, his heart is not to dominate his wife and sort of shove something down her throat. The Lord doesn't treat us that way. The longer I live, the more amazed I am at the gentleness and the patience of the living God toward me. There's no other way I can explain the reality of my life at age 63. I can't explain it except in terms of his gentleness with me and his patience with me. God is so patient. Now there's, there's a Christian husband, gentle and patient, not dominating, but serving, leading, protecting, providing for, so that your wife becomes, with each passing year, a more and more lovely woman more and more fulfilled. And if your wife 
If her life is not moving in a positive direction, that's on you. If her life is a dead end, that's on you. It's not her fault. God's calling you so to care for her, to love her, nourish her, and cherish her, such that there is, your wife is amazing. Your wife has latent potentialities that, in fact, right now only God can see. But they will emerge out of her as you handle her so well. In John 15, uh, in the old King James Version, it says, I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman. And I forget what the modern translations are, but my father is the, the vine dresser or the gardener or whatever. What, you see, you take the English word husband and turn it into a verb. And it means to care for and to develop. You husband your wife. That's what a husband does. He cares for and develops his wife. That's what we see right here in this picture of the gospel. So, um, a gospel-centered marriage is for something. It is for the display of the love that will make human beings magnificent. It is not the purpose of God just to make you nice. Who wants to be nice? I don't want to, I don't want to be nice. I hate nice. I want to be amazing. So do you. That's the purpose of God. That he might present to himself the church in splendor. That's his purpose toward us all. And so a husband looks at that and says, okay, there's my privilege as a husband. How can I help my wife in a way that, doesn't, that she can experience as positive? How can I help her to become the amazing human being that God wants her to become. That's what I'm in the relationship for. And when a husband treats his wife that way, handles her that way, and with each passing year, this amazingness just begins slowly and to, to, to appear in her, the kids will notice it, the neighbors will notice it, colleagues at work will notice it, the in-laws will notice it, everybody will say, for crying out loud, how did you guys figure that out? Where did you get that kind of marriage? And then that's a conversation starter. And you can say, well, Jesus and his gospel are just landing on us and making a difference. And we totally don't deserve this. We don't, we're not good at it. But, um, you know, he, he gave himself for me. And I realize now that's actually the reality I'm swimming in. This is not an ideal I made up. The love of God is all around us right now. The Holy Spirit has opened my heart. That love is actually flowing into me. makes a difference in how I treat my wife. And I so didn't start this, and I didn't invent this. It's just what God is doing in me, and I'm looking at my wife with new eyes. We're sort of rediscovering us. We're falling in love more and more deeply, and uh, there's no other explanation, and you guys could have this too. God wants this for you too. Now, that's what your marriage is for. That's why it is what it is to be for that, which is beautiful. Okay. 
Um, honey, let's jump down to... Oh, 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 there was one other thing I wanted to point out. Before we jump down to verse uh, 32, okay? Um, all right, let me prove to you that what I'm saying is right. I'll prove it from the passage, okay? That, that what your marriage is for. Um, beginning at verse 29. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. He nourishes and cherishes you and all of us. We are really important to him. Um, Verse 30, because we are members of his body. Wow. Theologians call that union with Christ. that the risen Christ does not just love us over there at a distance. And you see, you know, he's up at the Father's right hand and we're down there on planet Earth and he really cares about us, he really loves us. But there's this infinite distance between us. That's not what's happening here. He has made us, the Bible says we are members of Christ. The way my hand is a member of my body inextricably joined to the rest of me. And the Bible says we, the unworthy, are members of Christ, joined to Christ. So this is up-close love. This is involved love. When the risen Christ confronted Saul of Tarsus, he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? When Paul, Saul of Tarsus, beat up on Christians, Jesus said, that hurts. This is up-close love. This is involved love. This is connected love. This is love that pays attention. We are members of his body. That's the great statement, okay? Now, now look at verse 20, 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and so forth. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Do you see what Paul has done? Back in Genesis 2, God created Adam. Then God created Eve from Adam. Then God brought Eve to Adam. Adam said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then Moses observed, and that is why couples fall in love, pair off, get married, start their own family. It's because of that reality that happened in the Garden of Eden. Remember the word therefore in Genesis 2? Now, Paul has taken that verse from Genesis 2 and lifted it up and plunked it down into a new context here in Ephesians 5. Now, the therefore is not because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Now, the therefore is because of our union with Christ. We are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father. That's why we all get married. This is the ultimate reason. At the heart of the universe is a love too great to be limited to what we deserve. Therefore, young men and young women fall crazy in love and are propelled into the mega commitment of marriage 
And that is how on earth something, however imperfect, but something real of that ultimate love is displayed. You see that in the logic of the passage? We're members of Christ's body. Therefore, we get married. To provide a little tiny social platform on which here's a man and here's a woman standing on that social platform called marriage, and that and what their marriage is for is pointing to the ultimate romance. So your marriage, small m, matters because it is for something. It is for the replication of the marriage, capital M. Almost nobody in this rotten, fifth-rate, evil world where people are crushed every day, almost nobody believes that's what the universe is for. Absolute, crazy, romantic love. And you, therefore, are a powerful force to make that love real to people. That's when you, you know, when Janie and I got married, I just so wanted, I wanted to marry this girl. I was not thinking in these categories, but that was all right. God was thinking in those categories. Now I understand a little more clearly what this is really all about. Okay, so I just wanted to point that, the flow of thought there in verse 30 into verse 31. Um, Okay, darling, verse... uh, 33, um, what stands out to you there, love? Let me just add a, a little footnote to what you said about a man cultivating his love toward his wife, cultivating her and yes. developing her. It was very interesting. For Ray's 60th birthday party, one of our daughters-in-law, who's very techno-savvy, put together um, a CD of Ray's life. And um, in that, there were some pictures of our relationship along the way. The last 44 years, we've known each other. Back then, it was 41 years we had known each other. And uh, there was an older gentleman in our church with whom we're quite friendly. And uh, he came up to me afterwards, and he was just talking about how nice it was to see all these pictures. And then he said something before it, he realized it had come out of his mouth, and he's been apologizing for it ever since. He said, you know, you've just got really better looking through the years. And, <laughs> really? uh, yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah, it wasn't yeah, we at the time. Say that. <laughs> uh, but what I want to say is what, what Ray said to you husbands is very true. A woman is most beautiful when she knows she is loved. Ray plucked me out of a very dysfunctional family in Minnesota married me and for the last 41 years has loved me into the woman that I am and am becoming. A woman is most beautiful when she knows she is loved. And I believe that's why God gave that command to men. So anyhow, respect. However, let each, uh, verse 33, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I just want to say one thing about this. Were you taking a breath? No, I was just inhaling. All right. Yeah. Um, (laughs) It's amazing, you know, as the earth goes by. I mean, she knows what I'm thinking. I know what she's thinking. I inhale. She says, 
and <laughs> you're doing great, baby. Go for it. Thanks. One of the things I needed to learn as a wife was respect, what that meant. I remember early on in our marriage, um, Ray, as you can tell, is a bit of an adventurer. I mean, we've lived overseas. He's done a lot. He's very courageous, and I'm a wimp. And I, I drag my feet. I'm frightened. I, you know, I'm always thinking about all the things that could go wrong. And it was hard for me to respect that in Ray. And I remember during one of our, shall I say, uh, heated challenges uh, between the two of us, when I, I think that might have been the time when I told you you tricked me into marrying you, you changed, and I didn't really know what I was getting, which is true in every marriage. But um, <laughs> Tim Keller says you marry a stranger. You, marriage makes you into a different person. So you really don't know who it's you're marrying. Point. Anyhow, I told, Ray said, honey, I just need you to, you know, to respect me a little bit on this. And I'm so sorry. But I said, but you're not respectable. (laughs) And you know what? That might have been true, but that's totally not relevant. The Bible doesn't say, wives, respect your husbands when they deserve it. Respect them when they're respectable. The Bible says respect is a gift we give to the man whose name we take. Respect means he doesn't have to earn it. Think of it this way. If he has to earn your respect, do you have to earn his love? You want him to love you when you're not very lovable. You need him most to love you then. That's good. Respect is a gift you give your husband that will protect your marriage and build him up, free him to be the man that God wants him to be. Yeah, yeah these are not silver bullets that will solve every problem, but no marriage is going to work any other way. That's for sure. And uh, when, when we, for the first several years we were married, uh, it's embarrassing to me and I, I kind of wince when I think of the kind of husband I was because I did not love Janie as Christ loves the church. I was so arrogant, and I was so condescending. I didn't realize it. I didn't intend to be. I just couldn't not be. I'd always been that way. And when, and, and I, I, I began to realize... Wow, Janie actually processes reality in a way different from the way I do. And I kind of pride myself in being, as I, in fact, it wasn't true, but I, I saw myself as logical. And I thought logical analysis is really all that matters. It's all that really deserves respect and it's the only thing that really should be listened to. It's all that counts. I perceived Janie as more emotional in her responses. That was a correct perception, actually. <laughs> and therefore, her responses and her way of processing reality was therefore, by definition, inferior to mine because it wasn't coldly rational. This is embarrassing. 
I finally got it through my thick skull, by God's grace, that not only was I not as, that itself is not logical, but that her way of experiencing reality and responding to life was a gift from God to me. It was complementing, it wasn't invalidating me, but it was enlarging me, adding to me, complementing me, helping me understand, especially in relation to the children. Her way of, I began to realize this is, this woman is wise. This woman is insightful. If the kids had only me, this would not go well. Now, I'm making a contribution as their dad, and I'm grateful I can do that. But I have a prize here in my wife. I have a resource here in my wife. She gets things I don't get. And without her, the whole family would be greatly diminished and deprived. And so I, I just realized what an idiot I was. I had to humble myself and just take a whole new view to, to rejoice in how different my wife was from me and open up new channels of communication and sharing and really listening and realizing there is a, a, a kind of a God-given native genius in my wife that really enriches the whole family. And uh, so I, I, I repented and I'm, I'm thankful for just the way your intuitions about how life works. Very, very wise and insightful. Um, okay, so a wife needs to be loved and a husband needs to be respected. By the way, I think that's so fascinating in verse 33. It's not what I expect to read. Here's what I expect. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she loves her husband. I mean, isn't that what we would expect? But it's not what it says. A wife needs to be nourished and cherished. That's what love does. And a husband needs to be respected, believed in, looked up to. When a woman is nourished and cherished, she experiences that as love. When a man is respected and trusted and looked up to, he experiences that as love. Verse 33 is filled with insight. It's filled with psychological insight into men and women. So I don't want to respond to Janie according to my intuitions. I want to respond to Janie according to her intuitions and what makes sense to her, how she's wired. And she wants to respond to me not according to her intuitions but according to mine and just how I perceive reality as a guy, as a man. All right? Darling, anything else on Ephesians 5 for you? All right, good. Well, let's go into Q&A now. And uh, you might want to jot down your question right now while it's fresh on your mind. And um, David, do we want to pull those cards together now, or what's the best way? We take a little bit of a break right now. Yeah. Allow us to pull the cards and go back a few days. Perfect. Uh, let's do this, you guys. Um, we'll take, take a little bit of a break.